May the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts, be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. The sign that hung on the clubhouse door read, The He-Man Woman Haters Club, No Girls Allowed. On the inside sat Spanky, who was the muscle. Stymie, Buckwheat, and uh were the members. Alfalfa, the brains, and the president. I think Pete the dog was there, maybe Froggy and um, and Porky, you know, they might have been inside. And if you have no idea what I'm talking about, you are way too young. Um, this is the Little Rascals. Uh, the Little Rascals, a program on television in the 20s and 30s and uh, became, you know, one of the most widely syndicated programs of all time all across the country. I grew up in the 70s watching The Little Rascals, and um, I've noticed several modern manifestations that have occurred in between, you know, for, for even, uh, you know, ages as young as my children. And so the humor is timeless, the cultural situation is a little distinct, but always able to be worked out. And a lot of the stories were predicated on this, that little boys didn't want anything to do with the little girls. And the little girls had no idea why the little boys didn't want to play with them. And then the little boys would grow up a little bit. And like one of them would would mature a little bit faster than the rest. And he started noticing the little girls. And um, and he kind of liked them. And he wanted to hang around with them. And this is Alfalfa, of course. Alfalfa has a crush on a little girl called Darla. And, and, and in one scene, Alfalfa is running the He-Man Womanators Club, and then the next, he's sitting down with Darla at her tea party, gushing about how lovely she is. And you know what happens, right? And Spanky and the boys find out, and, and he's in trouble with the guys, and then Darla finds out that Alfalfa's the president of the He-Man Womanators Club, and he's in trouble there, and it leads to one of my all-time favorite quotes from Alfalfa, where he says, And then the clouds open up, and God said, I hate you, Alfalfa, and uh, and he just has to live with that. It's the problem with exclusive clubs, isn't it? That sometimes you realize that the people who are excluded aren't so bad after all. And John says there were some Greeks who showed up in Jerusalem during the Passover festival, and they were captivated by a young preacher, a young Jewish preacher called Jesus you have to understand that when, when John says some Greeks showed up in Jerusalem, all sorts of cultural bells and whistles should be going off in your head. For Jews in the ancient world, it was, it was a big deal to be ethnically Jewish because it was, it was a, a, a connection between ethnicity and religion. You couldn't, you couldn't uh, extract one from the other. To be a Jew meant to be Culturally, religiously, ethnically Jewish, all together wrapped up in one. In, in our world, we sort of have, have made it one or the other. And so you have people like, I don't know, like Woody Allen, who's ethnically Jewish but agnostic. In the ancient world, you could not have had that. That simply didn't exist. There were no such thing as agnostics, for one thing. But to be Jewish meant to be, to be part of the Jewish religion. And, and so here you have these Gentiles, these Greeks, showing up in the capital of Judaism, on a festival day, to go to worship. It's interesting that they want to worship, but, but the fact that they're trying to is, is filled with all sorts of tension. Greeks could worship the God of Israel. It was the only monotheistic game in town. It was the only world, the, the Judaism was the only world where you could worship only a single God. Everybody else had worship of multiple gods. And so if you were convinced of the truth of a single deity, 
Well, Judaism was the only option for you. And so there were some Gentiles who wanted to worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But they were always sort of kept at arm's length. Auxiliary members, sort of allowed but not really in. And these Greeks who show up in Jerusalem that John tells us about were just these sorts of people. I imagine that while they were there, they were caught up in the crowds that would listen to Jesus hear his sermons, see him do these uh, remarkable things, they probably were amazed at his passion and clarity, earthly metaphors, you know. Jesus never uses uh, heavenly language. It's always about a farmer and a woman with a coin and, you know, some seeds that were thrown into the ground. Always these very secular sort of metaphors, and I'm sure they were caught up with that. But also this sort of peasant who would dare to challenge the ruling class who would, who would call hypocrites hypocrites and, and do things like that. I'm sure that it was, it was quite the stir. And so they go up to one of Jesus' followers, this, this uh, fellow named, uh, Philip, and they say to him, we'd like to meet with Jesus. Do you suppose that he would meet with us? I know that in the lesson it read, as it does in your Bible and in mine, um, sir, we would see Jesus. Where I went to college, there's a chapel. Students had to go to chapel every day when I was in a, a college student. And, and there was a, a plaque that I discovered after I be, you know, graduated and went back to be a preacher. You know, And here I was preaching in the pulpit where I used to listen to all these sermons. And there's this plaque on it that says, Sir, we would see Jesus, right from, from John chapter 12. It's a good idea, you know, that people want to see Jesus when they come to here. But that's really not the point, is it? Not, not the way the passage meant it. Sir, we would see Jesus met. Could we meet with Jesus? Do you suppose he would take time for us? Do you think that he would have conversation with us? And all of this is predicated on the fact that Jesus is, I know this is going to shock you, a Jew. (laughs) He's a Jew. And here he's going to, uh, these Greeks, these Gentiles. Do you think he would talk with us? Do you think that he would meet with, do you think there's room in Jesus' life for some Gentiles, some outsiders. Well, why do you paraphrase that like this, you ask? Well, I'm glad. The historicity that I just explained to you is one thing. But also notice what happens. They don't go to Jesus himself, do they? These Greeks are in town. They don't go to Jesus. He's obviously right there. Crowds of people are around him. They don't go directly up to him. They go to this fellow Philip, a Jew with a Greek name. Philip. And they say to Philip, will you go to Jesus on our behalf, basically, is what they're asking. And Philip, I, I love Philip. But he's, um, he says to them, I can imagine, wait right here. <laughs> you know, like, oh, my word, what am I going to do with this? You know, like, I, I don't know. And he doesn't immediately go to Jesus, does he? In my mind, He has to go past Jesus. He doesn't even stop to talk to him. You know, he actually sees him, but walks right on by because he wants to find someone else. He wants to find Andrew. Andrew. So I got this request from these guys. What do you think we should do? Andrew also is a Jew with a Greek name. I think that's quite interesting. And so here are these Greek guys want to meet Jesus. They don't approach Jesus. They go to Philip. Philip goes to Andrew, and then together the two of them go to see Jesus. Here's what it says in the text. Now, among those who went up to worship at the festival were some Greeks. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and said to him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And then Philip went and told Andrew, 
And then Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. B.F. Westcott, an Anglican bishop of the 19th century, wrote this. Philip is unwilling without further counsel to grant or to refuse, listen to this, the strange request to bring Gentiles to the Lord. Philip's unwilling. He's not going to refuse, but he's not going to grant because this is a strange request and he doesn't know what to do. Wait here. (laughs) I'll go get help. And it runs off to find Andrew and then eventually together they go. We never know if they actually get to talk to Jesus. John doesn't tell us. He skips right over that part. But there are some clues in the text, particularly the inclusive language of Jesus. Listen to these passages. Some Greeks, just some general, right? Some Greeks came to Philip. And then in verse 26, 26, Jesus says, And if anyone serves me, anyone. Or in 26, if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. And and then in verse 32, Jesus says, And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw, listen to this, all people. This sort of inclusive language, you hear this? It's it's not just a a certain group, it's 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 a broad group. Someone, anyone, all people. The Greeks say, is there room for us in the Jesus clique? Is there room for us in this band of followers? Can we come along too? And the answer is yes. And this is where we start throwing a party, right? This is all right. We're in. The doors are wide open. Everybody's included. Whosoever. Wonderful. That includes me. I'm in. Only you know it's far too early. It's not that easy, is it? It's never just that easy. There's always a catch. Whoever honors me, the Father will honor. But then he says, and whoever wants to follow me must deny himself. Right? Whoever wants to save his life, he says it in this passage, must lose it. And whoever's willing to lose their life will save it. And then this caveat. My soul is troubled. Jesus says this, my soul is troubled. Same word, whoever wants to save his or her life, suke, soul, mind, life, being, right? Whoever wants to save their life must lose it. Whoever wants to, who will willingly lose their life, suke, same word, will find it. And Jesus says, and my life, my soul is troubled, storm-tossed. In turmoil. Why? Why is your soul in turmoil? What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? What's he talking about? Oh, you know, you're way ahead of me, don't you? Oh, he's talking about the cross, Joe. He's talking about crucifixion. Save me from, is this what I should say? Save me from this hour? No. It's for this reason I came. Jesus knows his future includes the cross. His future includes suffering. And so those who love their life lose it, and those who hate their life in this world will keep it. Whoever serves me, listen to this, must follow me. Oh, my word. You know, I'm not so sure. Like, you know... I didn't think that's where it was going. I wasn't sure that that's what we were talking about. You see, Jesus knows his future includes suffering and humiliation and death. He knows that the evil one is about to unleash the full force of his weight upon the frail human body that is Jesus's. 
He knows that he is going to face suffering that's going to be real, suffering that will not be pleasant. He will suffer just like you or I would have suffered if we had been beaten. He is about to suffer in the same way that you or I would have felt suffering if we had been stripped naked and nailed to a Roman cross and hung in the city streets for everyone to see. He's going to suffer just like you or I would suffer if while hanging there dying, we looked down and saw our mother sobbing on the street, crying, unable to do anything to help. He's going to suffer just like we would in that moment. But he says, this is the plan. This is the way I intend to defeat the evil one in this world. So, you want in? Come on. Plenty of room for you. Only here's the requirement. This is the test. You know what? I don't know about you, but this is a tough word to me. It's it's a hard word to me because I kind of like the Jesus who says things like, is there none to condemn you? But then neither do I condemn you. I like that Jesus. Hey, you? I like the one who says, peace be with you. Oh, thank you so much. I needed that. Or the one who says, in my father's house are many dwelling places. I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, there you may be also. Two chapters over, you get that. Oh, I love that. I, if nothing else, back to chapter 2, I like the Jesus who turns water into wine. Now that's a messianic program you can get behind, isn't it? Yeah. Give me some of that. But it's not the full picture. The full picture is the one where wine is turned into vinegar. The full picture is where suffering and hardship come into play. And listen, I don't like suffering any more than you do. I'm going to be honest with you. Here's a little, here's a little pastoral honesty. I am full on tired of Lent already. All right? I like my little creature comforts. My little pacifiers, you know, because of the big baby that I am. You know, I, I like them and I miss them. And if you don't miss them, then they weren't sacrifices to begin with for you either, were they? Those little Girl Scouts peddling their chocolate thin mints on every corner right in the middle of Lent. We don't do suffering, do we? We don't like it. I mean, we don't do it at all. You know, give me a week without air conditioning in July. Oh, my word. I, you know, man was not meant to live this way. You know, it's, it's the end of the world. And then we flip on our television and find out that little children are being nailed to crosses right now in Syria, in Iraq, in Nigeria. Why? Because they will not deny the name of Jesus. Men and women who are dying today because they will not deny the name of Jesus And we eschew any sort of hardship here. You know, don't laugh at me if I pray over my lunch. You know, I I couldn't take that. High school students don't want to be mocked because they follow Jesus. I've had people say to me, pray for me. I I just need a new job. You've got to understand, I'm the only Christian where I work. And I let that sink into them a bit. And then I say to them, no, I'll pray that you don't find a new job. Why? Because you're the only Christian where you work. If you go, who else is going to be there? You're you're the last person in your place. You're the one who gets to be the witness. Oh, it's tough, though. I know it's tough. You know, in the ancient world, 
the temple in Jerusalem. If you wanted to worship the God of Israel, this is the one place you had to go. If you wanted to worship the God of Israel, he had an address. You know, it was it was on Temple Street in Jerusalem, one building. This is where you go. The pagans, you know, you could worship Diana in Ephesus or Rome or wherever. Not the, not Yahweh, not the God of the Israelites. In the temple in Jerusalem. This building was designed with the intentionality that the the more you went into it, the closer you got to God. Roughly designed like this building is. An outside kind of narthex area, a holy place here, and then a holier, holiest place up front. Okay, And then there would be a a wall between. You couldn't get it. Small room in the front. But here's the thing. If you were not a Jew, you had to wait in the parking lot. You had to be out in the outer courtyard. And there were these big stone warning signs. They were written in Greek and in Latin, lest there be any confusion. And here's what they say. You can find these. Um, it, you know, these are archaeologically recovered, okay? No foreigner, that is no Gentile, is to go beyond the balustrade nor the plaza of the temple zone. Whoever is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his death, which will surely follow. <laughs> Could you imagine? Could you imagine if we put signs like that on the front door, you know, like... You're not an Anglican. Do not come in here. It's absurd, isn't it? But not in the first century. See, here's the real irony. Is some Greeks came to Jerusalem one day during Passover and decided they wanted to follow Jesus. And what had been the warning became the invitation. <laughs> What had been the warning became the invitation. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.